Nine against the nine. 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 A podcast about Lord of the Rings. All right. We're here at episode eight of Nine Against the Nine. It's Nine Against the Nine, y'all. <laughs> That's right. And uh, we're doing a Middle Earth miscellany or miscellany. We had this conversation. I don't know if it. Do you remember having this conversation? Yes. I don't know if it kept if it if it uh, was retained in the released. Audio. I don't remember if it was recorded. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, you say miscellany. Miscellany. And I think I say miscellany, although I haven't heard the word said out loud maybe ever until we were having that conversation. I looked it up. And both uh, are acceptable. Yeah, both are acceptable and <coughs> miscellany is British and miscellany is American according to probably Oxford online. That's wacky. Okay. You got any thoughts on that? No. <laughs> We've also referred to this episode as the stash box episode. So these are all the things that we didn't didn't just like get an episode unto themselves, but we think are noteworthy. These are sort of like the honorable mentions. Yeah, outlier outlier creatures, events, geographies. I have some geographical, at least one geographical concern. I have no idea what I have. Yeah. This episode is going to be a little different because you're going to hear our interlude music probably ten times because... Uh, we're we we I don't have quotes really right now, but I know that this stuff is there. And given the way I want to present the format, um, I think we can just check every time. So we've done for the format of this episode and probably the next one. We're like the whole the format of all nine episodes. We may have hit the climax, resolution, whatever the rising action. And it's crested at supremacy, and now we're kind of riding that curve down to come to a like it's a resolution to then have a conclusion in episode nine. Maybe I'm not sure supremacy was the climax of the whole season. Ah. <laughs> That's interesting. There, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was a thematic. rising action, heavy hitting episode. It was a thematic. There was thematic thickness. Two hours and two hours plus. Yep, but we got ten separate topics for you today. I want because I want to do the top ten miscellaneous things that we haven't talked about on Nine Against the Nine, and I've yeah. ranked them. I've ranked them according to how weird or uh, yeah, how how just I don't know what word am I looking for for these things. There, I'll give an example of one that I think in episode one, when we were describing what these episodes might look like, you said the thing that the Nazgul ride. Like what's the what's the deal with that thing? Which is it weird? Is it irregular for Middle Earth? Is it uh is it a mystery? Uh, maybe, I don't know. Is it I think it's it exists. there's a word there I'm looking is. for. What's the word that in it, they're enigmatic. There's some enigmatic things about Middle Earth. Mm. And these are your top 10. We haven't talked about things that... You have not told me what your top 10 are. You have not no, told me your 10 things. It's a surprise. I have not come up with 10 things. Yeah, but I've been pushing you to come up with 10 things, and you yeah, said... Yeah, there's some you, things there. You, how many did you come up with? I, I left my list at school. Yeah, but if you had to guess how many you came up with. Uh, five. All right. Six. Yeah, four. And, 
and we'll see you seven some, three <laughs> all the Fibonacci numbers <laughs> we uh we'll see if the 10 that I came up with are the same as the 10 that Clark came up with and we're gonna do this in a way where you're gonna say all right the next one yeah number 10 so we're gonna do a countdown and then if we're gonna do your countdown and if there's anything that I wanted to talk about that you didn't have on your list tough can you say it again? I was looking at my notes. You, so you're not even listening? Well, don't have don't have note envy. Just <laughs> so if there's if we get through your top ten and there's something that I wanted to talk about but it didn't make your list, then we'll do it. Even though it might oh, not be okay. as grandiosely enigmatic as the number one, which Great. I'm not even sure which one it is. Um, but I'm about to look. You any corrections? I do want to talk about one thing that I didn't don't think I mentioned um, from the supremacy episode. And I might have had a note, maybe I mentioned it, but maybe later on it struck me again. Um, and it's this, it's Aragorn as he's king. This is from this, you're t- referring to supremacy? Supremacy. As a topic? Yes, from the last episode. So Aragorn and supremacy. So he's king and f- there are two things where he maintains control. He's like, nope, I'm in, I'm in charge you're subject to me. The first one is Faramir as steward goes to him and he says, I want to like relinquish my stewardship. I want to be free of like this. I don't like, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, I'm out. And Aragorn's like, "Mm, no, you're not. You're still steward forever for life. That's your family. You're stuck. I will let you go to Athelden and like do your own thing. So like, I'll give you a plantation or whatever, and you can be, in charge you can live a nice enjoyable life but you are subject to me what's interesting about that not to get into episode seven again is that if faramir he's like or aragorn says to faramir you can you can like leave the city but you have to be in name the steward still right so that's like he's like uh he's like he can become a um like what's it called a landlord who's not there there's a term a landlord who is doesn't take care of the property and is like living in a state far away or whatever. Absentee landlord, he can be like an absentee landlord. He can like live somewhere else, and there's people that probably could run the city that th- they won't because they're like, well, Faramir is technically in charge, but he's like not even on the scene. He has to be accountable to Aragorn. Yeah. But the people of Middle M- Minas Tirith don't even get to decide who should run the city. He doesn't even have to be there because Aragorn insists his title is more important than his function. He's not even insisting that he function. He's just insisting that he be in the white dude club or whatever. It's like, yeah, if, like, if I call on you, you have to be there. Yeah, sure. Sort of like the whole the like, Paths of the Dead thing where they he was like, well, I have to call on you, and they're like, we don't want to do that. And they're like, well, now you're cursed and have un, you're going to have unrest for hundreds of years. Telling me you should bring up the Paths of the Dead today because that's one of the top ten <laughs> enigmatic miscellaneous things about middle earth that we haven't discussed in nine against the nine too much cool. so the other thing the other thing about aragorn and not letting go um pippin is like gave his service to denethor the steward and denethor before his whole like shambles and like undoing unraveling um said you know what pippin i release you go die wherever you see fit like we're all dead 
I release you of your vow and your responsibilities. Go die somewhere. And Aragorn at one point came, came to Pippin and said, I do not release you of your service to Gondor. You are still whatever, like you're still beholden to Gondor. And if I call upon you, you must answer. And I was like, motherfucker, first of all, Pippin didn't offer his service to you. He offered it mm-hmm. to Denethor. Second of all, he was released from it. Yeah. So you have no bearing. No, you have bang. no, yeah. like, n- in no way, in no capacity, do you have any control over Pippin, yet you've just exerted yourself. Big bank take little bank. Right? And that seems that seems very, like, well, that's colonialism. Supreme. Yeah, and it's also a pyramid, sort of like a... Um like a pyramid structure hierarchy where Aragorn at the top can override the authority of any of the any of the things in the next tier down and the people at the bottom ultimately are answerable to him regardless of what their supervisor says it's it's messed up yeah it's messed up um i was going to correct just quickly i was referring to orientalism and i think that i said it was an attempt that the West was attempting to define itself in contradistinction to the East. And having read more of uh, Syed's book, I, I, I mean, I think it's, it's that the West is trying to define the East. Everything else is um, sound about the way we talked about Orientalism. Generalizations, that all makes sense. Um, that's all. But I think, uh, I think the West is defining the Orient in Orientalism. Although, it, yeah. That's a minor point. It's so minor, I might cut it. You ready to get into this? Your top ten. You. <laughs> Your. T- All right, the top ten. Top ten. Ten things. Well, do you? I mean, like, you don't have to get into the top ten formula, but you ready to talk about miscellaneous stuff sure. from Middle Earth? Sure. Well, this is going to be more of a going off the cuff kind of thing. Less prepared. More grassrootsy. Reactionary. <laughs> reactionary. Reactionary. Politically reactionary episode. Mm. No, I think that w- the format is that we're going to have to look stuff up. Mention some- something, do an initial yeah, reaction, me- yes. pause, look things up. Exactly. Come back to it. Yeah. Cool. Okay. We've already covered a couple things that I that I think would be on a top 10, so I'm just going to shout them out quickly. One, the Ents, they keep coming up. And... Uh, they're a weird thing in Middle Earth, but they're not. I mean, they're given whole chapters, so you know, they're kind of kind of mainstream topic. And then the other one is the Blue Wizards, which I feel like you said you wanted to get back at that. I want like at one point I did, and we didn't get to it, so we we'll probably expect non-closure with that one. But you said you had already discussed your Blue Wizard theory. As, and the, and yeah. the blue wizards may have been, may have like gone out east to find the people out there, and the people were like, "Well, Sauron's kind of our people's champion because it's against their, like he's the only one fighting against this." Yeah, they went native or whatever. Right. So like, they're like, yeah. "Oh, we see it. Well, yeah, okay, we see it your way." Yep. Yeah, this whole like Numenorean elf supremacy thing. Maybe that's not so good. Like, who's on your side? Yeah, that they became sort of like champions of a of a non Western people, right, in the south or in the east. Um, and I think it's in, it's relevant that you say that you lack closure because that's the deal with some of these topics that we're going to come up with today is that they're tantalizing. Like, we want to know more about the Blue Wizards to the point where I'm ready to write fan fiction about it. But um, 
Tolkien just doesn't he doesn't deliver. And he and I think I don't have the quote, but we've talked about it before. He said specifically that um, some things are meant to not be understood in this world, that they don't have clear explanations. Mm-hmm. In that way, I think it mirrors our world. So that we we as speakers, readers, listeners can maybe should expect non-closure on everything. Yeah. Mystery. Yeah. Expect mystery and enigma. Okay. Here we go. Number 10. Number 10. All right. So surprise, there's, there's actually 11 topics. <clears throat> Not allowed. Top yeah. 10. Well, so one of them though is from the Hobbit and that's why we're going to oh, go. I'm not going to we'll say it first because I don't, outside. I don't think it's the least weird. So I don't want to do it as number 11. I want to do it as number whatever it's listed. Um, but it is from the Hobbit. So number 11, uh, which is so broad that it, it's almost not on, shouldn't even be on this list, but it's religion and the, no, the, the practical aspects of religion in this book, I think are obscure or kind of, kind of missing. So it's more the absence of religion. Yeah. What's the nature? Like if you were on the Wikipedia page for Arda, or What's like, Arda again? I think it's the world. The universe? The world. I think, well, yeah. Yeah. I think it's the world. The known existing place of matter. Earth, the universe. But it's not Earth, it's Arda. Yeah, Arda's the world. It's Quenya for the world. Or the realm. I thought, and they speak Quendi. That's what the elves speak. We talked about this earlier. Yeah, I don't remember I don't which remember. is which. Quendi and Quenya. Yeah. We can check it. Yeah, go back, y'all. Go back. We're not checking it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think there's one time when I notice religion. And we've talked about it before on this episode. Yeah, in the two towers. With Faramir in them? Yep. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what they say? Faramir mentions that before we have a meal, we will face the West sort of as a memory of Numenor of the West. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like, I'm thinking of uh, Rajni Eddins and like, before we do this or like at the end, like we're going to thank the ancestors. We're going to recognize the ancestors. And he has this poem, um, beautiful sun people or like talks about ancestors, etc. So this is sort of like that. Yeah, is it to the ancestors when Faramir says it, or is it to the Valar? Hmm. It's West anyway. Mm-hmm. Similar in a similar era in a, in a nearby scene, Damrod says, "May the Valar turn him aside." Speaking of the um, elf Oliphant that's charging at them. Is that who they're trying to turn aside? Yeah. Yeah. So like the notion of invoking a god, a god's protection, a blessing. It's the only time the Valar were mentioned as far as I can remember. Yeah. It's maybe like a, not a blessing, but like a, like a hex or a curse, right? Um, Channeling divinity, the divinity of the Valar, trying to turn aside an enemy. But is it channeling divinity or is it just... It's a request, right? They beseech the Valar. Um... But then again, like you could be like, Lord, help us. And like, what, who's Lord? Is that like Lord Jesus Christ? Or is that Lord Denethor? Your name here. Right. Lord Aragorn? Like, who's the Lord? Whoever can save us from the charging Oliphant. Right. Lord John? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, 
you never see in these books a, like a temple to one of the gods, right? To one of the Valar? No, no. temples. No. I mean, like, what's even like a temple in this book? The burial grounds. Yeah, burial grounds are... The tombs. Are, that's religious. The uh, halls of whatever Denethor burned the pyre and whatever that was, that was sacred in some way. Y- you mean the location was or the, the choice to try the to destroy... The location is was as much of a sacred place as I could think of any. He is making a sacrifice too, right? It's not he doesn't I don't think he's we could check, but I don't think he says to a certain Valar, you know, none of the Valars want human sacrifice. Except for Melkor maybe. Hmm. He's he's out. Melkor's out. Yeah. So speaking of the burial grounds, we they uh we're going to get at them in a minute. Doesn't we have talked about how the some of the Numenorean descended kings became like necromancers. Right? They started worshiping the dead and the lineage became you were talking about how they became more enamored with their ancestors. Right. So enamored with their ancestry that they couldn't focus on the on the offspring in the future. Right. And that feels and like that a, comes from the text somewhere in the books. That's I don't a, remember where at that this could be a religious impulse, right? To trace an ancestor. Like so, then what's what's religion? Is religion dogma? Is religion ritual? Is religion something you hold something sacred? What do you mean by religion? Can all you, the, all the things you said are good, and I don't I don't want to try to define it, but right. I do think that we can say these elements of religion are missing in Middle Earth, and I think temples are missing locations places of worship are missing are missing and i think uh practice like a like liturgical practice or uh even theurgy there's there doesn't seem to be any any work that they're doing that's religious in nature as a relate as relating to a deity because there so. are there are these burial sites rohan has them the barrow downs are them the place in like the catacombs or whatever in Minas Tirith these places exist there are rituals around burying the dead there were rituals right we don't see any performed well uh, Theoden as he was buried does that happen they take him and bury him I don't know I'd have to read I'd have to look again or Theoden that would be going back and looking for the burial scenes if there are some who else is buried is Aragorn at the end of the book is Aragorn buried Mm. Do they refer to his? They refer to his marriage, and they refer to maybe his burial later. I don't. Theoden's think buried. The, the end of the book ends with Samwise Gamgee returning from the grave. Oh, okay. Ships. I'm thinking about the appendix, right? Right. So, and I didn't read the appendix because that's not. <laughs> that's not, not the book. Scene. Yeah. That ended. It ended. There's yeah. no chapter title. It's called Appendix A, Appendix B. That's not the book. Everyone I talk to who listens to this podcast says, "I love it," but you just don't talk about the appendices enough. <laughs> because they're outside. <coughs> technically, technically, they're not part yeah. of. They're outside. Oh, well, listen. Technically, they're part of the book because they're in there in their pages. All right, it's all fine, good. It whatever. comes. It comes up sometimes. It's yeah, all good. Well. It's all good. You know, other auxiliary sources mm-hmm. arise. Um, maybe I'm just okay. interested, more interested in the story rather than the. We're gonna. T- I'm gonna. We're gonna take a peek for Theoden's burial site, and before Gosh. we dive, before we dive into the books, um. He is killed in battle, right? Theoden is, yeah, yes. Okay, cool. We'll be right back. 
So I found we we went in and we found some stuff about people dying, that's related to some religious impulses. We found a thing about Denethor and we found a couple things about Theoden. And let's just do them. Let's just do them in order of sequence of events. Um, Denethor is he's trying to kill himself and his son, and he's in despair, right? Right. The pyre of Denethor. Yeah. And there's I was looking at it because there's something kind of religious about sa- about the notion of sacrifice. He what is he appeasing or what's what's his impulse here? And what I found is this. Uh, Denethor says to to uh, Gandalf. He will of of D- Denethor says to Gandalf of Faramir. He will not wake again. Battle is vain. Why should we wish to live longer? Why should we not go to death side by side? And then authority is not given to you, steward of Gondor, to order the how to order the hour of your death. Answered Gandalf. And only the heathen kings, under the domination of the dark power, did thus, slaying themselves in pride and despair, murdering their kin to ease their own faith. And then, then they say Faramir or whatever. Uh, so that's religiously interesting to me because child sacrifice is a religious impulse, and there's a lot of uh, a lot a lot of content there. But one thing I'm reminded of is how in in the Torah, uh, God says like, "Don't stop, stop, or don't uh, passing your children through fire to this this God that is called Molech." Okay. You know this? Do you know this bit know this. from the Bible? Yeah. I know the Abraham Isaac thing. One of the like, yeah, we've talked about that. And yeah. one of the, one of the things that God says in the Bible is, "Stop or don't do this, sacrificing your children to Molech, passing mm-hmm. them through fire." And some people have said this means, like, no more child sacrifice. That's an that's a that's a superstitious way to do things, and we're not doing that. But it's also possible that humans never really did that, and. Uh, we just are reminding ourselves religiously, like, don't do that. There's no reason to do that because it, it's not productive for humans. Um, I'm just speculating. Yeah. But either way, Gandalf in this book seems to be suggesting that there was a religious impulse. Like in the like in the Torah, the notion is there used the, this thing used to happen and it's bad. You don't have the authority to kill your children any, anymore. From what you just read, it also might seem like the like Morgoth or whoever it was was telling these old men, men of old, to be like, "All right, how about you? How about you just end yourself and your whole lineage, and then I don't have to deal with you? Like, how convenient? How convenient yeah. would that be for me? Right. And then you can like pretend you still have faith, like or whatever. Yeah. So they decided to cancel themselves. Yeah, and I it might even just be Sauron doing that Could in be. the second age um we are not going to look for this but some digging might show some things about Numenor because as Sauron influences the late Numenorean king uh Erfarazon there might be there's might be some sort of child sacrifice kind of stuff going on in that I don't know do you know no I don't know okay it also seems like Denethor wants to burn himself so he's not like so nobody can desecrate his grave he's in he's oh, yeah he doesn't this, want to be, he he's doesn't like want the city's gonna fall everyone's gonna die I might as well be in control of it and if I burn myself you can't desecrate my body this is like Hitler uh, chewing a cyanide tablet and shooting himself in the head in an underground bunker right and then he was taken out to a ditch and burned I don't know I just yeah. hear these are all ur- urban myths to me right 
Rumors. Rumors of war, as I, it were. I believe he was burned in the ditch outside. And then we've got uh and then we've got Theoden on uh Theoden as dead man as a religious uh exemplar. Do you want me to do the late in state thing first? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh when Aomer when Aomer comes back from the battlefield um to the houses of healing in the chapter called the houses of healing when he comes back from the battlefield uh Minister has already been besieged and Theoden's been killed. Um he comes to the hall of the tower seeking the steward but they found his chair empty and before the dais lay Theoden king of the mark upon a bed of state and 12 torches stood about it and 12 guards knights both of Rohan and Gondor and the hangings of the bed were of green and white but upon the king was laid the great cloth of gold up to his breast and upon that his unsheathed sword and at his feet his shield the light of the torches shimmered in his white hair like sun in the spray of a fountain but his face was fair and young save that a peace lay on it beyond the reach of youth and it seemed that he slept so I don't know I see some I, you know the repetition of twelve is conspicuous and the arrangement of the sword and the shield and they did the same with Boromir when they put him in the boat they put shield at his I think they put the shield at his feet his sword and all the swords of as of his enemies that he slew at his feet too before sending him over the falls of Rauras. So a lot of identification with the weapons. Yeah. Right. Um after like way at the end in the chapter of many partings, they also they talk about taking Faden back to Edoras. And they take him back um this is a passage from that men of the mark prepared the funeral of Theoden and he was laid in a house of stone with his arms and many other fair things that he had possessed and over him was raised a great mound covered with green turves of grass and white evermind and now there were eight mounds on the east side of the barrow field so this is sort of the, uh, the burial rituals they're creating a barrow field that also like harkens to the barrow downs east of the shire so they're laid with great possessions, buried. Buried with stuff, huh? Yeah, stuff. Yeah. Same with the Barrow Downs. And then at the very end of the whole, in the appendices, at the end of the uh, timeline, we've got the death of... the death of the passing of King Elisar. It says that... Uh, it is said that the beds of Meriadoc and Peregrine were laid beside the bed of the great king. And then it also mentions what we've talked about before, about Legolas builds this gray ship, sails it down the Anduin and over the sea with Gimli. And they all go to Valinor. Um, so I don't, not much there, but the laying of people together is interesting, especially what you just said about Aragorn's heavy-handed demands of authority. Like, what, did Merry and Pippin die on the same day? It almost implies that they're, you know, that they're sacrificed with him the way that Faramir would be. It doesn't imply it. it <laughs> one can imagine a world where King Elisar says, get me those two hobbits because I'm going to die and they're going with me. Mm, sort of like Egyptian pharaohs are buried with servants. So goes the story, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And that's definitely what Denethor is doing, trying to take Faramir with him. Yeah, but he and Aragorn never had anything over Merry. Other than dominion of the entire known world. Right. Yeah. Okay, so there's some ceremony. What what can we in some in summation what can we say about the f- nothing about religion in general, but we can say something about funeral rites that they're identif go ahead. Right. So there's funeral rites. There's also there's I have this feeling that the Grey Havens, the traveling to the west over the sea is like the afterlife. Yeah. That's as close to an afterlife as we mm-hmm. can get. They're leaving this world and going somewhere. To a more perfect sort of realm. Heaven? Is that what you said? Heaven? I it? don't... Yeah, <laughs> heaven is used to describe that thing, sure. Mm. Mm-hmm. Heaven is the more perfect... It's an idealized... Right. It's an idealized version, and even the gods that reside there, like pantheia, pantheons of gods... They have like archetypal, uh, an archetypal range. They're not as mixed up and confused as people and elves. They have like certain clear roles. It's it's just a more idealized. It's a, a realm of forms, platonic realm of forms. Right, but it doesn't. It's never actually existed in text. It finds manifestation in the real world, and then there's like a back to the source. There, everyone's going back to the source, and that's maybe I don't know how that's related to the stuff. Then. Ashes, ashes, dust to dust. Well, back to, to the a, earth. back to an essential type almost. And that's why I'm wondering if like the sword thing and the shield thing is like in death, you become identified with this symbol. You stop being a complex human and you become identified with a symbol. I'm mm. guessing, I'm guessing with the swords. Mm-hmm. Complexity. These dudes love their swords. <laughs> yeah, they do. Swords are singular, you know. Phallic, they're, they're phallic. Sure. They're an extension of an arm. They're pointy. They give you power and control. Yeah. Okay. The simplest, which is physical, physical dominance. You want to talk about religion anymore? No. Okay. <laughs> you ready for number nine? Number ten. No, number number nine. ten. Number nine. Yeah, number ten. Number ten is easy. We don't have to talk about it long. Shadow facts. The king of the horses. Mm-hmm. Horse lords. Greatest of all horse lords. He's a horse lord? Yeah. Shadowfax is? Yeah. He is the lord of the blah, 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 which are the best race of horses. Are the Roha, are like the, the Rohirrim also called the horse lords ever? Yeah. Okay. Maybe he, maybe Shadowfax is the lord of the horses. So what's interesting to me about Shadowfax is that I think there's a kind of a trope in fiction of an unrideable stallion yep. who is bonded with one person. Right, there's the bunk- bucking bronco, there's cowboy lore, there's whoever like can break the horse and like tame right. them. Yep, that are, that happens in Lonesome Dove. There's yep. a horse that only one person can ride. Have you ever read The Black Stallion? No. Black Stallion's about that. There's a boy, I think his name's Alec, and he, I think he's stranded on an island with this black stallion, and he tames it or breaks it. I don't know what word they use, right. but they're they're it's it's more like a cooperation in this you know this fantasy is that a human and a horse are cooperating, which is how it's portrayed here, with Gandalf and with Shadowfax. Gandalf and Shadowfax or or Shadowfax and anyone that he will like he will not have a saddle he will not be saddled or bridled but if he bear if he is willing to bear you that is enough and he will not let you fall. Yep, and Gandalf 
fucking loves shadow facts right mm-hmm. sure you think you you don't think it's like his he seems to I think that Gandalf expresses love of shadow facts more than a love of any other character okay I can see name that. one character Gandalf loves more than he loves shadow facts <sighs> fine can't do it right fine it's yeah it's shadow facts is that and why does he love shadow facts you have a theory on this one I I have a thought, yeah. Because they're friends. That wasn't my theory, but that's a good theory. You think they feel bonded? He feels bonded with them? Sure, they're bonded. They're bonded like the Avatar movie where you put the the end of your ponytail into the main and... Who's a bond? An Avatar movie. The Avatar the Airbender or Avatar the Avatar blue, the guy, blue, blue, blue guys. Haven't seen it. <laughs> well, they have, they have ponytails and they have like these little openings and they bond with the things that they ride. Yep. Uh, so there is that bond and the golden compass and that whole thing there's a whole thing with the familiars yeah but they're called daimons right demons Um, sure daimons daimons (laughs) any all usages acceptable miscellany yep tomato I think that Gandalf loves shadow facts because he's fast I think it's that simple skill based Mm -hmm. and speed and also Gandalf is like uh proficiency based well he's a thinker you know he's very uh he's the he's yeah he's a Gandalf's a thinker he's the strategist he's He's the puppet master mm -hmm. and that is a suitable metaphor plus it's a mess he can go fast like Hermes or whatever right he can zoom from location to location with Shadowfax but Shadowfax is not divine he's just a horse he's the best of all horses the fastest Mm mm-hmm He's he is to horses sort of like Aragorn is to humans, to men, mm-hmm. just better. Except yeah, but Aragorn does it genetically, with his... physically better. Shadowfax is genetically sup- supreme. Yes. Aragorn is, according to pedigree, supreme. I well, think... also like above that of lesser men because he lives longer. Ye- yeah, I guess he's the only That's one like I mean, that left. Is he? Is he the only no, one? No, like there's a couple. There's some. What about this prince? Prince, th- prince Athelion. Yeah, he's old too. He's probably like 300 or whatever. Yeah, the other rangers, the other Dunedine. But Shadowfax is just a horse, and he's just fast. Sure, but it's like I feel like Shadowfax is sort of like the thoroughbred, the Arabian, the like, the cream of the crop okay. horses. They're yeah, not like a so they're different breeds of horses. It's not like the wild horse. He's but like he's not the, like a wizard. Is not a dude who's at the top of his game. He's a god disguised as a dude. Sure. And Shadowfax is a horse. He's a horse. Yeah. The I best do. of all horses. And I think that's maybe that's why Gandalf loves him so much because he he envies his his realness. He's not like Shadowfax is like Secretariat. I don't know Secretariat, but that's a that's a racehorse, right? Right. It's a racehorse. Uh, Secretariat was a racehorse who got like stood up within a minute of being born or like some insane thing where like, well, I've never seen that happen. And then triple crown winner. And they were like worried in the last race, like, Oh, he's, he's like breaking out too early. He's going to be passed. And then into the, he just crushed everyone. Yeah. Like one by an insane amount of distance. And people were like, that's ridiculous. That's like the Bobby and they Fisher, made a movie about him. The Bobby Fisher of horses. Whoever people, Bobby people know, Fisher is. He's a chess dude. Um, you know, people know the name. LeBron James. 
right? <laughs> yeah, that's debatable. LeBron, there's a great debate around LeBron James, like in general, all, all-time scorer, all-time scorer in history for sure. Yeah, but then in just in terms of name, and and that is right. I want to talk for just a second about that because do you remember as a kid? I don't know if this is. I think it's common because I know there's a band that named themselves Shadow Facts, so I think it's common to read that name and be like, "Hell yeah!" Like it's just so rock and roll. So man. Shadow Facts is like LeBron James in the if there were no Michael Jordan or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It's not just LeBron. Larry, it's like, all it's kinds. Just, of, there's people's names that become, um, they become symbols. They're like charged. With this power, yeah. obviously, obviously Jordan, Usain you know, Bolt, yeah, I, yeah, that's that one's fun because it's got the word Bolt in it, right? Even yeah, I mean, there's no. Fa- what I'm saying is there's no competition for Shadow Facts. There's no debate. Yeah, and what I'm saying is his name is numinous. Something about the way it is, it comes off the mouth. Shadow Facts, you know. Oh, I see. Yeah, no, just straight the straight joy of the of saying the name Shadowfax. It's a dope name. And it stands for dopeness at the highest level. Okay. I don't know the band at all. I think they're a metal band. I think it's a metal name. <laughs> all right, number 8. No. Nine. Number 9. Easy money. Shelob. Okay. Shelob. Spidery. What do you know what do you know about her? Oh, she lives in these dark caves in the paths of Kirith Ungol near there. and You know how old she is? Very old. She eats her children. You know who she, you know who she's related to? The other spider. <laughs> the other spider. I had I had her name written down. What was, what was Hagrid's favorite spider? What was Hagrid's pet? I don't know. That's a question they're, for the... They're probably related. For the, um, <laughs> what's, the, what's the nine against the nine analog in the... Harry Potter world. What? What's the nine against the like? Uh, what do you mean what's analog? the what's the number that you would use? You'd be like for some some coy podcast about Harry Potter. You'd call it the three. What what are they called? The three things, the Elder whatevers. Oh, the line, the circle, the triangle. Yeah, what are those called? Deathly Hollows. Yeah, that's not doesn't have a doesn't have a number. Trinity. Let's see what uh let's see what Robert Foster's Guide to Middle Earth has to say about Shelob, yeah? Aragog, that's the name. Good I'm glad you Oh, Aragog's the name of Hagrid's Spider. Yeah. I was like, nice, he nailed Shelob's ancestor's name. No. But we're gonna get that too. <laughs> Shelob Aragog. Similar. Also have good also a good name. Um So in in the in the guide it says first age through fourth age which I don't know what to make of that because she survives Sam's attack I guess yeah. so right she just crawls off that's why she crawls off and then she whimpers and like of course she's tough as shit she's not dying so she's been around since the first age oh yeah yep um pestilent she, her, off, she, her offspring her offspring dwelled in the Ethel Duoth and in Mirkwood so those uh, adder cops that Bilbo and them mm-hmm. run into are the lesser, the degraded versions of their their Shelob's Right. So offspring. the same thing with like Aragog's children want to eat everyone in Harry Potter. They do. Yeah, they attack all the I don't people. Rem- I don't remember that. Okay, but does she? Does she? She cares about them or not? Because Shelob just drops them and goes, and then you were saying she eats her own kin. 
later? Yeah, I think she eats her own children. Yeah, her ancestor, who we're going to look up in a minute, uh, I think is is notorious for eating stuff. Mm. I think she eats stuff. Yep. And I don't... I'm using she because I think that's what Tolkien does, but I do think it's it's more like an archetypal force in the in the books. Um, it's also she lob. Eight man elves orcs. Um, she trapped Gollum, but released him on the condition that he bring her food. That's, we, that's we know, interesting. We know how that plays out. Um, although I can't imagine two hobbits is a big feast for a giant spider. Yeah, but it could be like his promises. Shelob paralyzed Frodo, uh, blinded and stabbed by Sam, used the file the vial of Galadriel and Sting. So those are the weapons that were used to hurt her. She may have eventually died of her wounds. This is what Foster tells us. She may have eventually died of her wounds or of starvation caused by her inability to hunt while blind. Yeah. Okay. We so gotta, she, instead of hunting, she has to trap solely, perhaps. Yeah, or she has to convince things to bring her food. Right. Because she's like a god, spider goddess. But if she's trapping, like, who, what's going on? Like, who's passing through that disgusting, gross place? After Probably the all war, living creatures are like, no, after thank the you. War, after the war, I don't know. Maybe there's right. a bunch of orcs going one way or the other. But um, I don't know what happens to Mortar it's after... Not, yeah, probably not What happens to Mortar after the war, you know? Yeah, I don't know. They just move all the industry. They did something with <laughs> Minas Ithil. They move all the Minas industry They did there. something. They were like, we're, we're not going to settle there. We're going to let it fall down. And then after it falls down and... Who said that? Aragorn and I them were men. like, yeah, men were like, we're not going to re-inhabit. We're that not, city. yeah, we're not doing that. We're not rebuilding that. That's going to collapse. Like we're moving on. She loves ancestor is named Ungoliant, and uh, and you, you were saying that Stephen Colbert knew the answer to that question. Who's She loves parent? Right. He, uh, I think it was this past year, he was asked trivia questions to win a pair of genuine Mary. Mary's genuine ears from the movies. She, um, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the Lord of the Rings fandom right now, and and it, that that source says that she's a primordial who takes the form of a giant spider. Mm. And it does use she, but it's it, she's more like a she's more like a, like a feel. Like a feel? Yeah, feels. She's she's like a she's an. She's a feeling. She's a feeling, yeah. Okay. A feeling of hunger. Oh, like famine is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah, the... Like hunger is one of the... F- yeah, yeah. She's a... Yeah. Is it hunger well, or is it famine? She's not famine. She's hunger, right? She's just like... Are they both her. horsemen of the apocalypse? I don't know. Should There's war, pestilence, famine... And death. Death. Probably. So she would be like... She's like famine, the feeling... Uh, well, she yeah, she's never satisfied, I guess. The fandom also says that she her uh, her origin is unknown even to the the Valar. Right. Ungoliant drinks the sap from these trees. She also uh, poisons them, and then she demands that Morgoth give her these gems, and she eats the gems. But she he won't give her the Silmarils, so she doesn't eat the Silmarils. But she eats all kinds of stuff, and she has to be Morgoth has to defeat her himself, even though she was helping him raid valor of the uh, of its light and beauty she's like a beauty drinker so she's helping him raid and take over and have power and everything 
But then she's also consuming all of the plunder. Yeah, the demand is that she consumes and all Morgoth's the plunder. And like, that's mine. I guess, yeah. I, w- I wanted that. Stop eating it all. Yeah, even as like a god, he's Like you're eating the spoils. That's what we're doing it for. Stop. That's why I say she's maybe feeling, because she seems to be even more primordial than the gods. It's like someone helps you plant raspberry bushes and tend to it and then eats all the raspberries. And then you're like, why? why? Yeah. And then maybe get any. And then maybe continues to eat everything else. Right. Yeah. Won't stop eating. Yeah. Hungry ghost or whatever. Okay. The mouse with the cookie. Eight. Uh, And this is the one you're prepared for because it's uh, Bombadil. Bombadil. And Goldberry. I collapsed them both. Yeah, they need uh, to because they're together. Yeah, and and the fact that Tom Bombadil seems to be the enigma and Goldberry just comes off as his wife is probably more just a function of that basic um, issue of focusing on the male characters that we talked about. You know, it's not it's not that Tom is actually more enigmatic or more ancient than Goldberry. It's just that he's the male character and right. he gets or that he's more important in the partnership in their partnership yeah it's just that our perspective is skewed right. right so i think we'll talk about them both he's he's a famous tom is a famous example of a character that that nobody people are always talking about him as the thing that is enigmatic and unexplainable in middle earth i feel like yes he's also notoriously missing from the film adaptations did they film it and cut it i don't think they filmed it yeah, that's curious, isn't it? Because it's obviously to cut, you know, to cut down on the time. But it's also like they don't, like, how would you even approach it? It doesn't, doesn't make sense. They probably don't understand it. So who is Tom Bombadil? If we look in Fellowship of the Ring in the House of Tom Bombadil, the chapter, he is the master of wood, water, and hill. The trees and the grasses and all things growing or living in the land belong each to themselves. Tom Bombadil is the master no one has ever caught Tom. No one has ever caught old Tom walking in the forest, wading in the water, leaping on hilltops under light and shadow. He has no fear. Tom Bombadil is master. And that's Tom Bombadil on Tom Bombadil, right? That's Goldberry on Tom Bombadil. Oh, no kidding. That's Goldberry talking about talking him. to Frodo. Interesting. Tom talks about himself in the third person, also, right? Yeah. His song is about himself. Yep. It's a fun song. Yeah, I had a tune for it when I was a kid. You probably did too, but you listened to the audiobook, so you got a tune, right? Sure. We're like the cadence. Are you going to sing it? Because <laughs> Tom Bombardil is a merry fellow. Bright blue his jacket is, and his boots are yellow. Like a cheerful, upbeat yeah. kind of thing. Mine is the, sim- is the same cadence, except it was good Tom Bombadil Tom Bombadillo doesn't it at some point say Tom Bombadillo or, Tom Bombadillo oh, yeah that's, Tom like, that's Tom the first Bombadillo. introduction to him Frodo's running around like help 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 and he hears, he hears that crap yep so without looking at the book here's what I think is neat about Tom Bombadil is that he puts on the ring he doesn't disappear takes it off and acts like it doesn't matter at all right and later Gandalf or Elrond but I think it's Gandalf <coughs> Gandalf at, at Elrond's place says he wouldn't have come even if we invited him. Yeah. Well, his realm is his realm ends near the at sort of at the edge of the Barrow Downs or whatever. There's like a geographic location for him. He's never identified with one of the Valar, as far as I know. No one ever implies that he is actually a Valar or a Maiar or whatever in disguise. 
there's some ethereal like magical quality to him like he's like he's always existed like he's not actually a, a humanoid maybe he's like the earth or something because he's master but it, like he's he doesn't control everything belongs to themselves but he's master yeah Robert Foster says that his race is unknown although it is possible that he was a Vala he uses Va- Vala maybe Vala is singular Vela Valar, I guess. Huh. Um absolute power within the old forest. Absolute power but like there's no power. There's power but no power. Yeah, he's like um he's like a recluse, right? His mm. power is in that he is at one with nature and he doesn't get involved in worldly affairs. Yeah. Th- then I think that's what is most what when I was looking at this recently I was it was most noteworthy that he's sort of always been there he's always existed he's of the earth he's got he's like very old school he doesn't have tiled floors stone floors he's got this like lovely spring feeling cottage he puts fresh cut greens on the ground as part of it so he's very earthy he doesn't care about geopolitical power he doesn't care about control he doesn't care about the ring or the power of the ring um he says that hobbits are better like just run naked you don't need the jewelry your hand is fairer without it you don't need any of these like little trinkets which is interesting it's he seems very natural mm-hmm. and there's one there's like one counterpoint to that which i have a question about when they when he frees everyone, when he frees yeah. the hobbits from the Barrow Downs, mm-hmm. and he brings out all of the gold and treasures and spoils to sort of break the spell, and he says, "Oh, let it be there, free for the taking, for birds or beasts or men or passersby or whomever." He takes, he takes something shiny, a little pin or something, so he could take it home to Goldberry. Oh, really? Yeah. He just take one thing. He took one thing. Yeah, and you know that's almost kind of like the sort of breaks my theory of like the, well. The trinkets. I don't know that it does in the sense that, and I don't know a lot about Zen Buddhism, but I, I think there's a notion that nirvana and samsara are the same thing, right? And that you're always kind of like, uh, like he doesn't totally absolve himself of any desire for stuff. He accepts some level of materialism. He takes a petty object. Yeah. He doesn't have to become attached to it or whatever, but he he do, he doesn't go the like ascetic route of saying I uh, I reject all pleasure, right. I reject all earthly things. Um he's so he's so I don't know how to put it. It's like a it's a non-duality thing. He doesn't have to take one side. He doesn't have to be totally doesn't have to be binary. He doesn't have to accept it or he can play both sides of that binary. He can say, "Yeah, it's a cute pin." It's not gonna. It's not like it's gonna come corrupt him or whatever. But he's not. He's likewise. He's not gonna be corrupted by an absolute sense of himself as being perfectly monkish and austere. Yeah. So this is the this is the thing. The text he brings out this pile of stuff, and he chose for himself from the pile a brooch set with blue stones, many shaded like flax flowers, or the wings of blue butterflies. He looked long at it, as if stirred by some memory, shaking his head and saying at last, Here is a pretty toy for Tom and for his lady. Yeah. Fair was she who long ago wore this on her shoulder. Goldberry shall wear it now, 
and we will not forget her. So it has, it is a piece of jewelry, a toy that also harkens to the natural world, flax flowers, blue butterflies. Yeah. But there's also something like that non-closure that like you're never going to like stirred by something as if stirred by something, some memory. It's like, what's from the past? What is Mm, that? Yeah. Or like, uh, I don't know. You know, okay, so I don't eat fast food. I guess as a rule or whatever, but I just, I don't really desire it anymore. Yep. But I think it would be appropriate for me to accept and eat at some point something like a cheeseburger from McDonald's or like a Wendy's milkshake. You know, I don't, I think that that would be maybe psychologically healthy to know that I'm not, you know, I don't want to become phobic of mainstream culture. Tom's not, he's, he's, he's given himself a little hedge on becoming phobic of mainstream culture by accepting a little bit of it. Hmm. He's taking this pin home. You know? That makes me, your analogy of McDonald's, eating a McDonald's burger, reminds me of something like, some friend of mine we were talking, we were talking about vegetarian or veganism, and someone, it was like, I'm not, like, I'm not a vegan or vegetarian, um, but like, if I go to a place and I sit down to eat, and the host has, you know, has made, uh, chicken alfredo i'm not gonna say no you need to make me something else because i'm vegetarian like they'll just eat it and be like yep thank you thank you so much appreciate the meal so not so yeah i mean i use firm static rigid i use the word zen loosely because i don't understand it well but that strikes me as kind of a zen attitude right like this person wouldn't wouldn't never Mm -hmm. buy chicken would never cook chicken but right it was given it's given as a gift by a host they'll eat it and this person also isn't holding themselves in a rigid type right and also isn't afraid that they're going to become infected or addicted right right okay now what can we say of goldberry well i also want like another oh, yeah, yeah. with tom and the the idea of the color blue there's this moment and when he with the ring so he asked Frodo, show me the precious ring. And he, Frodo was astonished that he drew, even drew it out and handed it at once to Tom. So like, that's, oh, so that's interesting. Oh. Um, this is in yeah same chapter. It seemed to grow larger as it lay for a moment on his big brown skinned hand. Then suddenly he put it to his eye and laughed. For a second, the hobbits had a vision, both comical and alarming, of his bright blue eye gleaming through a circle of gold. Oh. And that, I underline that as like as a visual contrast to the eye of Sauron yes. being this red eye in flame yeah. in a circle. And this is the, the ring of Sauron and the blue eye shining through. Ooh, it's yeah. It's Ooh, almost maybe like the color of water, sort of like a counterpoint to the to red, red and the yeah, fire. It's, yeah, it's almost like know. he's the polar opposite of Sauron. That's like the secret message in this book. But it's like is it a polar opposite? But it's not a binary because Tom isn't beholden to a binary. He's not beholden to the binary, so, right? Yeah, yeah. He's a funny dude. Um, it's also nice. This is a minor point, but in contrast to how much we were digging into it last episode, it's nice that his skin is brown. Because so many fair-skinned people are assumed to have such superior ways and are privileged in so many, in so many, in, in, 
are privileged by the narrator. And it could be, it could be as just maybe it's just the hand is brown, sort of like a, a farmer or someone sure, who works yeah. on the earth has like calloused brown way, worked hands. It's brown either yeah. way. Yeah. It's not a fair white hand. No, he's not unsullied or whatever. Right. Yeah, he's of the earth. Mm. Okay. So what can we and say? And he speaks highly of uh, Farmer Maggot, uh, like who is of the earth. Oh, he's got his, you know, there's wisdom in his bones, clay on his hands, and his and his earth or his feet are on the ground or something like that. Yeah. Even though Farmer Maggot beats Hobbit children. Yeah, but Farmer Maggot reveals himself to be more mystical than we thought. Right. As they, yeah. And it's interesting that as we edge toward the old forest, there's like a gradation into Tom Bombadilism. Mm-hmm. As the archetypal man of the woods, uh, what can we say of Goldberry? Goldberry is interesting, and um, so Tom. When we meet Tom, he's bringing her water lilies. He's bringing like the last crop, harvest, flowering, blossoming, the last glut of water lilies from this special from this pool where they bloom first and latest. So and like we see Goldberry sitting in this little cottage surrounded by ewers of water she's surrounded by water and flowers and I'm wondering if she's like not some type of nymph creature that needs water nearby Tom found her by that pool and now they're living together so like does she need water in order to exist by that pool long ago I found the river daughter fair young Goldberry sitting in the rushes Sweet was her singing then, and her heart was beating. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, and so she's like a nymph, right? She's the river daughter. She is the river daughter. Mm-hmm. And he's the earth, man. <laughs> so maybe she's water and he's earth. Yeah. Um. And he's. you said he's bringing her at the beginning. He's bringing her lilies. Mm-hmm. But she's living in the house with him. Yeah. So she's not, like, bound to the river? No. Mm-hmm. What does she do? Is she is she feeding? Does she feed them? Or does, does she make dinner? For the hobbits? Yeah. They have a feast, and they feast like they've... And there's also this timelessness to this home where they... I don't know. They sit and they talk, and they have no idea how much time passes... It's almost more Rivendell than Rivendell, where like they could sit forever. But I don't know about the the feeding part. They do have this nice when they set the table. Then Tom and Goldberry set the table, and the hobbits sat half in wonder and half in laughter. So this there's this laughter thing. There's this comedy. There's this joy. This jovial nature of Tom and like bright colors and green and yellow and colorful and light lightness to their beings so sat half in wonder half in laughter so fair was the grace of goldberry so merry and odd the caperings of tom yet in some fashion they seemed to weave a single dance neither hindering the other in and Mm. out of the room and round about the table and with great speed food and vessels and lights were set in order perfect marriage Mm a childless marriage too Hmm? we don't hear any about offspring we do not that's interesting Tom is eldest eldest that's what I am in the beginning of the house of Tom Bombadil that's when they first meet her I'm going to give the first description of Goldberry Um, 
The far side of the room facing the outer door sat a woman. Her long yellow hair rippled down her shoulders. Her gown was green, green as young reeds, shot with silver like beads of dew, and her belt was of gold, shaped like a chain of flag lilies, set with the pale blue eyes of forget-me-nots. About her feet in wide vessels of green and brown earthenware, white water lilies were floating, so that she seemed to be enthroned in the midst of a pool. So she creates a little pool around her. Right, and that's what was... Domesticated water. That domesticated water is what I was thinking, like, does she need to be mm-hmm. in the pool? So she was in the rushes, and she's recreating that. Yeah, a lot of blue imagery, too, you know, like, uh, with his eye. Yep. And what is it? The What's blue, blue? The blue gems. Yeah, blue, the blue gems, yeah. The blue gems on Goldberry's dress. Mm-hmm. I wonder what the gold is, you know, the sun on the water, or... But they're also... And the gold is shaped in leaves, so this trinket that he's bringing back from the Barrow Downs is shaped, has like shaped like flaxseed and has the blue of yeah. So there's this natural. This is a man who's in love with a river. I can relate, frankly. <laughs> and the river is Goldberry, perhaps River Daughter. Mm. Maybe she becomes the river. Maybe she's whatever. she's she's of the river. She's of the river. Okay. And he is timeless. Yep. You ready to go? Or you got more to say about Bombadil and Goldberry? (sighs) I don't know. There's definitely a like a respite and a refreshing nature to Bombadil. This whole thing. It's uh, yeah, and sort of like um, evil things didn't come into the Valley of Rivendell. It sort of feels like this is the most ideal place in the whole book, but also maybe not devoid of that kind of evil. Right, because it's got Old Man Willow. Yeah, that Willow tries to eat the hobbits. So maybe like this is the place of appropriate balance, timeless balance wild, that will last forever. Wild nature. Right. It's the nature. It's wild. But there's also this whatever path they tr- like walk seems to be trimmed, like maintained. Like it grows short so there's a path for them to walk. Mm-hmm. Almost like someone mowed the grass, but nobody's mowing the grass. Probably. Yep. Okay. The ultimate perennial garden. Maybe it's the Garden of Eden. Eden. Maybe this is Tom and maybe this is uh, Adam and Eve as they should should have been. If they never <gasps> ate from the fruit of the tree Ooh, of good and evil, there's a theory. Yeah, like oh, an old version of them <laughs> after thousands and thousands of years. And also, the guy's name is Tom, and the generic name for any English person is Tom, like a Tommy. I think about that a lot. Is that is it Tom in England? Do you think Joe yeah. in America, Ivan, you know, etc. Well. Yeah, what are the or like, like a John Doe? Yeah, John Doe, Tom Doe. It also goes back to like the idea or whatever we talked about in Hobbits, where it's the common folk that are the most important, and Tom just seems to be like folk. He's not. He's not. He doesn't have high aspirations. He's not chasing after. Yeah, he's not fighting the corporate ladder. He's folk not are often more doing, money. Folk he are often want doing that. More. He's got. Yeah, he's got enough. Yeah. It's just like living that life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something in that. You dig him. Yeah. You dig the Tom Bombadil lifestyle. I'm like, I'm like the Tom Bombadil yeah, lifestyle. Yellow and green. And blue. <laughs> and blue, yeah. And brown. And brown. Okay. Next up is... Uh, I'm losing track of what number. I think we're on seven, maybe. The Nazgul's Flying Mounts. Again, we've talked about him briefly. Yeah. I have the I have a description. 
lizardy creatures, bat-like wings, scalyish, not really scalyish, no feathers. Kind of a counterpoint to the great eagles. This is from uh, the Ballantines, Return of the King, page 140, <coughs> from the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. The great shadow descended like a falling cloud, and behold, it was a winged creature, if bird, then greater than all other birds, and it was naked, and neither quill nor feather did it bear, and its vast pinions were as webs of hide between horned fingers, and it stank, a creature of an older world maybe it was, whose kind, lingering in forgotten mountains, cold beneath the moon, outstayed their day, and in hideous eerie, eerie, right? Like, like where birds yeah, yeah. perch? Yeah. Dwell? Is that how it's spelled? Or sound? Is that the, the way it's pronounced? Airy? And in hideous airy bred this last untimely brood apt eerie. to evil. And in hideous eerie bred this last <laughs> untimely brood apt to evil. And the dark lord took it and nursed it with fell meats until it grew beyond the measure of all other things that fly. And he gave it to his servant to be his steed. Down, down it came, and then... Folding its fingered webs, it gave a croaking cry and settled upon the body of Snowmane, digging in its claws, stooping its long, naked neck. Yeah, eerie for sure. Eerie? Eerie. Yeah. So again, it's just kind of like a moment in this book where it's assumed that there are pockets in Middle-earth where you could find these, uh, these eldritch beasts. Like a pterodactyl. It's like, uh... It's like with chickens. What do we call it with chickens when they're special breeds? Like a, almost like an heirloom. You know what I mean? It's an heirloom bird. Okay. It's been specially bred for certain traits, fed a certain diet. It's like an heirloom flying creature yeah, of corruption. Er, yeah. Um, I think it's also kind of funny and typical how the notion is like there's a kind of meat that's fell. And you can, if you feed the fell meat to this beast, it becomes more evil. I sort of read that as like rancid meat. I did too. Sort of like the, which was vulture-like, condor-like, and these birds of corruption. And sort of their heads are um, featherless. Mm -hmm. Like a vulture. Right, which is an adaptation so they don't get the diseased whatever stuff in those feathers Mm -hmm. but those birds are also super important to the ecology of our world Mm -hmm. that's part of that phobia of dirt right dirt phobia yeah and rot and stank um so the meat is infused with death and and death and evil and then you feed it to the bird and it becomes more of a archetypal carrier of death i wonder if instead of like blessing a meal Oh, yeah. If they curse it. Yeah. So, yeah. like, a, a rite or a ritual, religious, like, oh, we thank you for this food. Please bless this food to our use. Like, curse this food. And make, make us it. more evil. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't, yeah, again, it gets back to the religion question. Like, how in this world do you sanctify or uh, or curse food? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. And they all ride him, right? It's not just the Witch King. Correct. Yeah. Although it that that narrative that we just heard, it sounds like the Dark Lord found one and fed it and gave it to his There are multiple 
flyers for sure in the movie. I believe they're in the book. Um, Legolas shoots one down. Yeah. On, yep. Like without seeing it. Yeah. It's funny too how they're like dragons. Like when you see them flying around the tower or whatever, it feels kind of kind of classically dragonish. Right. Like a like a worm though, where the wings are the mm-hmm. hands. So it's not like they're four feet and two wings. Yep. All right. You got anything else to say about those guys? Um, when they burned, when they burned the body, nothing else grew there. Like the flesh that burned on the fields of Pelennor, nothing else grew in that spot where it was burned. Yeah, where so the corruption was so great. Hmm. Sort of like salting the earth, and nothing will grow there again. Yeah, again with the like pocket of evil, right? Yeah, the bird is found in a pocket of evil, and then wherever the bird dies, there's this lingering pocket of evil. Yep. Okay. Yeah, five maybe. Six. We lost one at some point. This is number five. So there were never 11. There's 10. I don't know. We don't know. Either way, uh, the next one is the Barrow Downs, and we talked a bit about it, um, so we don't have to say much about it. All I want to say about the Barrow Downs is uh, that I think it's, I think it's interesting that <coughs> – Maybe it's not one thing I want to say. I think it's interesting that they are trapped there. I don't understand how they're trapped exactly. They're like um, transfixed, right? Yep. Um, and they lose consciousness because they wake up inside the inside the crypt, right? Yep. So someone gets them in there. They're someone, like, something, some yeah, spirit. They're, they're called in. and Some spell. And then they can't get out. Um, it's only Tom that can get them out, right? All Frodo does is call on Tom. Right. And Tom's power breaks the power of the Barrow Downs. Or the, the Barrow Whites. Yeah. Now, white being a word meaning a spirit, right? Yeah. I think it maybe in English used to just mean a person. It's sort of like, yeah, like wraith-like, spiritual, ghost-like. Yeah, and they've uh, sort of inhabited the corpses of these old kings. These oh, you don't dying. You, they've inhabited the corpses, or yeah. they are the lingering spirits. Ah, uh, I think it's something else. I think they've moved in. Oh wow! I always assumed that it was the spirits of these old kings, and that they were. There's there's monsters. a link. There's a link to the memory of these old kings. I thought but these it, are the yeah. like the old Numenorean kings from whatever realm was there so it's like this broken down ruined graveyard of this old kingdom which has become the shire where the these shire new- was part of it and these are Numenorians, right yeah yeah is it not is it not angmar angmar was more to the north yeah but like ang maybe it's like angmar and the evil spirits of there have like taken over this i think it's in a realm that was taken over by angmar during some wars but what strikes me about the Barrow Downs is like is the ruinous nature is the fact that this these three books this epic tale that we're experiencing is part of like this super long history in this world where the Shire is this like beautiful haven within like this old destroyed past kingdom yeah that's a recurring theme yeah, and what's fun about the book is that we move as we, as the characters move toward Gondor, they 
it's almost like they move into the past because they they move out of the aftermath of there being a kingdom and into the reality of there being a kingdom. Mm-hmm. And the Barrowite, the encounter with the Barrowites is early in that in that uh, transformation. Hmm. It's so almost th- like the hobbits are living in the the present. They're living in the now, and they go through like the very past of the Barrow Downs mm-hmm. and the and the Whites, and then they move into like the medium past of Gondor. Yeah. Shortly after the Barrow Downs, they meet a living descendant of the Numenorean kings. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I also think it's neat that they're rewarded with with stuff for getting out of the bed. This is a cl- we're going to get back at it in the next episode. It's a classic trope in role-playing games. You fight the thing inside the underground thing and you get the thing. Yeah, you right? get the treasure. Yeah. Bombadil hauls that out for them, right? Yeah, yeah, he hauls it out for all for all comers yeah. and he gives them their knives. And so I I just I don't want to dwell on this too much, but you don't think that the spirits that are the Barrowites are the actual are you think they've invaded the you don't think that they're that they come from the from the bodies and souls of the dead kings not the no not i don't think the initial spark comes from the bodies and souls but they it does work it accesses the uh it inhabits the bodies and accesses the souls somehow because when it was either mary or pippin woke up he talks about like oh there's this battle and like I was stabbed through with a spear and these people were attacked us and so he has the memory the memory of that battle that killed that person mm-hmm. is still there I guess my take on it is that it's tied to this necromantic impulse where the the kings of old were obsessed with being alive as their as their the, the length of their lives diminish they mm-hmm. become more obsessed with uh, eternity and uh, and immortality, and when they eventually die, they be this is like a lich in D and D. A lich is like yeah, this. Yeah, they, yeah, they yeah, really yeah. want to be alive, and so I think that they're maybe trying to possess Merry and Pippin and Frodo and Sam. I see. Trying to take over their bodies. So maybe um, uh, yeah, and if if it is a spirit that comes in from the outside, maybe it's able to do that because of that trait yeah it could also be a spirit i mean spirit is spirit right i was gonna say it could be a spirit that inhabits the king when the king's doing necromancy and then dies and then still wants to transfer to a new body yeah sure and at that point we're we're basically talking about an impulse you know among humans that like an egregore or like an archetype something that has almost independent volition but it functions through humans okay this this evilish urge toward staying alive forever so it's also, I mean, there are barrows in Rohan, because um, then gets made into a, a barrow, mm-hmm. um, and he was sort of inhabited by sort of like that same type of like corrupting impulse to live forever. Well, like Saruman, the- Saruman takes over Theoden's mind a little bit, like through spell. Sure. Okay. And Wormtongue's yeah. little insidious right, nature. Yeah. So I wonder if that like, that's like sort of it, Rohan could have could become that the Barrows could be could like lead to a similar thing with the Whites, but they still too, they're still young, they're still operational, and those guys seem to be more accepting of death, right? They seem to take pride in dying for 
they're, they're people. very very Viking like yeah and so maybe their death is more restful and maybe they don't they don't have this uh, the death is like the reward and then they get to go right, to um, yeah, yeah. Valhalla thank you um, unlike these northern kings who are desperate to stay alive right okay um, great bear downs you're done bear downs done number four the uh, the lights that are hanging above the dead people in the marshes the dead marshes the dead marshes there's like uh, phantom lights above their heads right yeah in the water above their heads or above the water I think it's above the water can and we check the text on this one we can check the text in a second let's do our initial reaction though right Gollum knows to avoid them he Don't knows follow that, the lights. Yeah, because he knows that they will follow them and, and what fall in or be grabbed is the suggestion, like the Barrow Downs, is the they suggestion... They will succumb that, to the marshes. That they'll go in, not yeah. that they'll be pulled in by dead people. Mm. Do the dead people ever, like, open their eyes or do anything like that? They already have their eyes open, right? Yeah, eyes are And they're open. preserved dead people from the last alliance of is that the war that these dudes died in that was where the battle was the second age battle the end of the second age yeah the last alliance of men and elves and like that was the field where they all fought so I sort of imagined that there were so many dead that there was no way that people were going to be able to bury and clean up after so they just kind of left everyone so all their bodies just got like corrupted and maybe a river got blocked or it just was flooded you say Maybe that, they chose to flood it. I you don't say know. their bodies get corrupted. In fact, their bodies are preserved, right? Thousands of years, and you can still see them with their eyes open underwater. Right. That's crazy. But you know how, like, your body has fluid and, like, we're 70% water or whatever? Mm-hmm. Maybe, like, all the fluid, flew, like, flowed out, <laughs> <laughs> creating the marshes. Yeah. I doubt we'll get a scientific description <clears throat> of, the, of how the marshes work, but... So we're going to go to the text. <laughs> I don't know, said Frodo in a dreamlike voice, but I have seen them too. In the pools when the candles were lit, they lie in all the pools, pale faces, deep, deep under the dark water. I saw them, grim faces and evil, and noble faces and sad, many faces proud and fair, and weeds in their silver hair, but all foul, all rotting, all dead. A fell light is in them. Frodo hid his eyes in his hands. I know not who they are, but I thought I saw their men and elves and orcs beside them. You want to do Gollum? Yes, yes, said Gollum. All dead, all rotten, elves and men and orcs, the dead marshes. There was a great battle here long ago, yes, so they told him when Smeagol was young. When I was young before the precious came, it was a great battle. Tall men with long swords and terrible elves and orcs, orcs is shrieking. They fought on the plain for days and months at the Black Gates, but the marshes have grown since then, swallowed up the graves, always creeping, creeping. But that is an age and more ago, said Sam. The dead can't be really there. Yeah, Sam the realist, right? Is it some devilry hatched in the dark lands? Who knows? Smeagol doesn't know, answered Gollum. You cannot reach them. You cannot touch them. We tried once. Yes, precious. I tried once, but you cannot reach them. 
only shapes to see, perhaps, not to touch, nor precious, all dead. Sam looked darkly at him and shuddered again, thinking that he guessed why Smeagol had tried to touch them. <sighs> well, I don't want to see them, he said. Never again. Can't we get on and get away? Yes, yes, said Gollum. But slowly, very slowly, very carefully, or hobbits go down to join the dead ones and light little candles. Follow Smeagol. Don't look at the lights. So I guess we never find out why there's lights. Uh, I love Smeagol, and I like that he, the metaphor is to light a little light. You're going to go down into the swamp and light a little light. This little light of mine. Yeah. Uh, every time I read Sam's reaction to Sam's thought about why Gollum might have reached down, it al- is always fresh to me. I'm always like, oh, damn. You know? Yeah, you had a reaction now. We're all thinking the same thing, yeah? What are we thinking? What are you thinking? I'm trying to go back. Why would Smeagol maybe want to touch those bodies? No idea. I think to eat them, man. Mm. I think, right? Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Really? Why else? Yes, he's always going on about how Smeagol's gross. Yeah, well, is that what Sam thinks? Sam thinks Smeagol wants to eat them. That's what the narrator says. seems to say Sam thinks that <laughs> Gollum wants, yeah. Or why he tried to touch him. It's also fun that Smeagol goes from uh, first-person plural to first-person singular. He repeats himself. We tried once. Now nah, it's just me. You know what I mean? The Precious wasn't with him then. That one time he tried to reach down. Right, but it wasn't with him, but he had had it at that point. He was already corrupted by it. Yeah, sure. Okay, so Robert Foster's Guide to Middle-Earth says, uh, Marshes east of the Emin Wheel expanded eastward throughout the Third Age and at some point engulfed the graves of the men and elves slain in the Battle of Daggerlad. The graves became the mirror of dead faces. That's, and there's a thing, I can look at that in here, the mirror right. of dead faces. So the, And the people did clean up after the battle, they did bury... It says, the, yeah, the graves, right. right? So they had graves. In the Third Age, third age 1944, many of the Wayne riders defeated in the Battle of the Camp were driven into the dead marshes where they perished. So there's two rounds of dead people. 1,500 years apart. I'm going to look up uh, the Mirror of Dead Faces, which I don't recognize that. Do you? Have you ever heard this thing referred to as the Mirror of Dead Faces? The Marshes? Yeah. I guess not. Mirror of Dead Faces, it says. This is, again, from the Robert Foster's Guide to Middle-Earth. Dark pool in the dead marshes containing the graves of men and elves killed in the Battle of Daggerlad. The faces of the dead men and lit candles showed beneath the surface of the water but could not be reached. And it just refers us to the two towers. So a great mystery. A great mystery. Why are there candles? That's crazy. There's nothing like that in this book. It's sort of like a will-o'-the-wisp. Mm-hmm. That little light in the... in the Woods. In the woods, but there's always like this watery, swampy nature to it. Yeah, okay. Um, again, there's a real connection to the D&D uh, plundering of Middle-earth for symbolism with the Will-o'-the-Wisps. Um, but I don't think of Will-o'-the-Wisps as being tied to dead bodies, but it's the same thing that they're going to pull, lead you astray and you're going you're gonna to step into something. Right. There's a, I've also, at some point, sometime, you know, there, there's these little, the little phenomenon of like a bunch of little insects flying around in like one spot over something. 
So maybe mm-hmm. it's like no seums or something, and they're like maybe something died on the ground, and like they're just the flies hovering around that little spot, and you can't really see them. But if the the light will hit, and it'll create like this yeah. mist, and it's kind of moving, and you're like, oh, there's a thing there. But you, like you turn the light on, and it's not there. But you turn the light off, and there's raking moonlight or something that hits it. You're like, oh my god, there's a spirit, but it disappears when the light goes on. Yeah. So. What a, I mean, it's corny to say it like this, but what a fantastical world where people can die and then nature can say, we're going to mark all these bodies with a single candle. It's, it's almost like a physical or chemical occurrence right? that seems to be mystical, but is in fact just inexplicable science. Some biochemical, yeah. alchemical thing happening. Yeah. Like what in the body? Yeah, it causes the light to go on when you die. See if we can get a science grant to go find out. Yeah, but we don't see this anywhere else in the in the books. There's nowhere else where like someone dies and bing, a little light comes on above them. <laughs> <laughs> it's so you know that the enemy combatants that are down, you don't have to shoot them anymore. Oh, I see. <laughs> when you're playing laser tag or whatever. Right. On the plains of Dagger Lad. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I'm good for number three. And this is our cuckoo's egg. Because this one's from cuckoo's The Hobbit. Egg. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. From the Hobbit. I see what you mean. Uh, I was always struck in The Hobbit. I read the Michael Haig illustrated one as a child, and it's there's an illustration of these characters that I am always struck by. The Storm Giants playing football at night. Do you know right. the scene I'm talking about? Yeah. I think they're like a day or two out from Rivendell, or maybe on their way to Rivendell, and there's a bad storm, and they uh, they witness stone giants playing a game yep where they're hurling a rock back and forth they're picking up rocks and hurling them and catching them and throwing them down into the valley yep and i don't have much to say about it i really want to talk about it because the michael haig illustration is so uh so um compelling they're they have these giant blue manes and they have tails and they're they're not like big clumsy oafish looking giants they're very athletic looking gigantic men wearing like uh, gigantic skin outfits and they have some theriomorphic qualities you know they kind of lion like theriomorphic yeah animal animal morphic I see yeah beastie human beastie Uh, and I don't know why I don't know if that's actually earned in The Hobbit I don't know if they say uh, they had manes and they had tails or if that's just Michael Hayden's embellishment I don't remember anything about manes and tails in the book but also you don't remember anything about giants anywhere else right giants don't really come up in this no but trolls yeah but trolls aren't the same as giants right I mean they are large things I guess yeah I there's not a lot of giants in Middle Earth right they happen to show up in The Hobbit and they're seen at a distance and that's not even really that far away yeah they remind me most of the giants in C.S. Lewis the silver chair yeah in the silver chair specifically huh yeah the silver chair specifically that's the one that I haven't read I haven't read the silver chair or the horse and his boy or the last battle since I was a kid Mm -hmm. but I've read the other four since then they're giants in the rocks um in the silver chair yeah i think there's one point like there was a sleeping giant and the people walked over him and they're like oh getting up oh the giant's waking up quick move along move along quickly hmm. so we don't get picked up and kick sky high for a football as thorn might say yeah thorn says that about what not about a giant though right does he I think it was Thorin, but oh, Thorin says it in the Hobbit. In, in the that Hobbit, scene, you mean? in the Hobbit, oh, he's wow, like, yeah. "We need to get, we need to find a place because this we're gonna either be drowned by the water, like the immense amount of rain, 
or we're going to be blown off the cliff by the wind, or we're going to be picked up by a giant mm-hmm. and kicked sky high for a football. Yeah. It reminds me of the sort of... Uh, Not an American football, like a <sighs> soccer ball. Yeah. It reminds me of the sort of playfulness of the fantasy world in The Hobbit, where things are a little more loose. I feel like he's a little looser with uh, with the tropes, mm-hmm. and in The Lord of the Rings, things are a little more consolidated. Like, right. Uh, we don't really have we don't really have giants or like when we have the Nazgul's flying beast he goes out of his way to be like this is a unique situation this particular kind of bird was transformed yeah. whereas in the Hobbit giants it's like taken for granted that there are giants yeah no he's developed deal. his world a lot more the Hobbit was what 1936 yeah I don't know Return the, of the yeah. King was 1956 so he's been working on like he'd worked on the world for 20 mm-hmm. years yeah Giants, I don't think giants come up at all in Lord of the Rings. No. Okay. They do, you mentioned C.S. Lewis. They're mentioned several times in, in the different books. So it's like a, it's, they're more uh, typical of Narnia. Mm-hmm. And, right. uh, and also J.K. Rowling's world. Right. They're more typical. Right. They're an anomaly in, in Middle Earth, as far as I can tell. All right, two more. Uh, number I two. I don't know, like, there are only two more, like, I have two that I was going to talk about. Yeah, word. So there's four more. But like, are you going to hit my two? Maybe. I kind of, I kind of think you're going to miss my one, but like the main one I want to talk. I about. don't think I'm, I think we're going to have the same number one. That's my theory. And also, number two is one is the one that I mentioned to you already as an example on the phone. The oh other yeah, you're night. not going to have. So you don't have the. Hold on. Well, I know what that yeah. one is, so you're not going to. So you say it. Either means. you're not going to have my my top one, or your top one is going to be the Balrog. No, the Balrog's not on my list because I felt like we already talked about it. Great. All right, so you might have my top one, but okay. I kind of doubt it. Was Balrog the other one? No. Okay, so this one is what? Well, this one's number two. This is the Mouth of Sauron. Yeah. And I don't know what I want to say about him um, at all. I hadn't thought about it until, I, you know, since I wrote his name down. <laughs> I, think, I think it's... It's interesting how, to me, okay, so the reason he's anomalous and enigmatic is because he comes out at, at a pivotal moment, and he's not, it's not the Witch King of Angmar, because he's dead at that point. Right, stabbed but, in the face. But, um, he's like this lieutenant that we just don't, we just haven't, he might be the guy that went to the Lonely Mountain to offer a ring. He, yeah. You know, like, he might be the chief emissary. Yeah, but he's, he's not the Nazgul. I'm not sure that we even meet any Nazgul. any sort of humanish emissaries of Sauron in the book at all. You know, he doesn't send out ambassadors or whatever. He well, does. He sent out that one. We, that we hear know. about it, but we never encounter that situation until... Yeah, but the, that ambassador is not going to be an orc or goblin that he sends out to I, the dwarves. I guess not, right? Um, sure, I guess not. Right. You think and he does, easy? and he he doesn't like putting orcs or gobl- like orcs in charge or on guard. He has men to do that. Men are sort of like the men are in charge of certain parts of Mordor. Yeah, we. I don't think we see that much though. We don't see it much, but it, it is mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so this, I I laughed earlier when you said like you hadn't thought about it much. So this is like the pure like here's a thing here's a like an in like a mis like miscellaneous part about the book is something en- enigmatic. And we're like, this is going to be a pure reaction and then text looking up. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is like, you're, Which, you're listening to it live. And we can look it up because I I know that he gives a, like a paragraph description. Right. Of there's who the, this, guy, who there's the guy, this guy He's like an old, I think he was described as a black Numenorian 
So sort of like the necromancer type going to like the, the black arts or whatever. He's forgotten his name. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So he doesn't like know who he is. He's been consumed by the spirit of Sauron. Sure. He's the mouth of Sauron. Um, I don't, we don't need to talk about it a lot, but I do think he's very creepily depicted in the movie. Yeah. And I have said this before and I'm going to say it again. I very well done. I didn't depicted. actually watch the, all the movies. I don't think I've ever seen return of the King. Mm hmm. But, but I've that's seen, what it was in. But I've seen this scene. Because and only I've, in the extended version. Yeah, so I've looked up this scene in particular, uh, and I am annoyed by it because Aragorn cuts his head off. And I think that's a very un-Aragorn thing to do. I don't think he would have done that, and I think it's a corny... It's a very Hollywood corny, thing. Yeah, very Hollywood do. thing. It's like a badass Hollywood thing. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah! It's dumb. Yeah, it's dumb. And But props to the costume design. It's really like Peter Jackson uh, at his finest because it has the weirdness of like the Feebles. You ever seen the Feebles? No. You know what it is or whatever? Peter Jackson made a movie called The Feebles that's just like a demented Muppets movie. Um, no, I'm just thinking of Fraggle Rock. Yeah, picture Fraggle Rock like um, Rob Zombie directs Fraggle Rock or whatever. <laughs> right? Uh, and that's what that. that's what the mouth of Soren is like. I mean, he's, it doesn't he have like teeth. His mouth is all... It's almost like he has no lips. And it's ultra it's like, wide, right? He's yeah, got extra teeth. It's super big. His teeth are super long and pointy and just it's it's just moist. And no eyes? Is he, or his eyes are covered up or something? He doesn't have eye the the helmet has no place for sure, eyes. Right, yeah, yeah. He's all mouth. But we're not sure like the text may not support having no eyes. I know, but he there is There are other depictions of him with eyes or one eye or whatever. And that's why it's a nice costume design moment because the text says this is the mouth of Sauron. And so they the, only show to, the mouth. Yeah, to do the visual interpretation of that is to emphasize the, the mouth at the expense oh, of all other organs. Yeah. yeah. And not the mouth in the eating sense the mouth in the issuing commands sense, right? Or the like, I mean, yeah, I don't know why he's called the mouth of Sauron. So let's get at the text, yeah? Yeah, because he speaks for Sauron? Because he's the emissary, perhaps? You want to get at it? Yeah, sure. All right. Okay, we found it, but we found some other interesting things. Uh, some troubling things. So this is the return of the king, the chapter, the black gate opens. And in my Ballantines, paperback Ballantines, on page 200, it says, The three vast doors of the Black Gate under their frowning arches were fast closed. In my version, it says, The two vast iron doors of the Black Gate under its frowning arch were fast closed. So some of the architecture of Mordor has changed so, yeah, <laughs> between editions. On, and this is my, my edition is also a Ballantine's yeah, but it's Del later. Rey. It's 90s, right? Or 2000s? Yeah, it's 2000s. It's got yeah. the pictures from the movies. So it's been revised. Ooh. Imagine, this would. This is conspiratorial, but imagine if it was changed to conform to the way it was depicted in the films. Yeah, probably. Maybe. That can't. That's, that's too insidious. Either I mean, they way. Changed, they changed, well, they didn't, they changed they, the wording of uh, the English versions of yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Harry Potter. Yep. That's a at date of publication thing, though. That's not in... in Philosopher's Stone. It's not because of the movies, though. Different. Right. Um, the big giveaway would be if in your version, if Aragorn cut his head off, and in my version, he didn't. But I don't think he does, right? No. Yeah. Um, so this is a few paragraphs past that. The black gate was thrown open and with a great clang, and out of it there came 
an embassy from the Dark Tower. At its head there rode a tall and evil shape, mounted upon a black horse, if horse it was, for it was huge and hideous, and its face was a frightful mask, more like a skull than a living head, and the, in the sockets of its eyes and its nostrils there burned a flame. The rider was robed in all black, and black was his lofty helm. Yet this was no ringwraith, but a living man. The lieutenant of the Tower of Barador he was. And his name is remembered in no tale, for he himself had forgotten it. And he said, I am the mouth of Sauron. But it is told that he was a renegade who came of the races of those that are named the Black Numenorians. For they established their dwellings in Middle-earth during the years of Sauron's domination, and they worshipped him, being enamored of evil knowledge. And he entered the service of the Dark Tower when it first rose again, and because of his cunning he grew ever higher in the Lord's favor. And as he learned great sorcery, and he knew much of the mind of Sauron, and he was more cruel than any orc. That's it. That's all we know. Yeah, I love I love the part like for the character when he shows the he shows the mithril coat, coat he shows Sam's sword, and it elicits a reaction. Um, and then mm-hmm. the mouth like he laughed again for it seemed him to like his sport went well. Good, good, he said. He was dear to you, I see, or else his errand was one you did not wish to fail. It has. Like what a like he's just getting off on this like pain and strife that he's seen. He's like, ha ha, my cards work. Yes, well. and what he says next is, uh, you know, and now he shall endure the slow torment of years as long and slow as our arts in the great tower can contrive, and never be released unless maybe when he is changed and broken, so that he may come to you and you shall see what you have done. Uh, that's sadistic, but also kind of kind of shadow projectiony because he's the one who has been transformed and trapped and broken utterly right he's enslaved to Sauron and to his evil machinations the mouth is and he speaks of he speaks of Frodo and the torment that they're going to put Frodo through mm-hmm. um he's like tr- something in his psyche is trying to emerge a, a realization of what he's put himself through is it or does like he seems to be like climbing the corporate ladder yeah it's miserable i suspect but does he like was is he does he feel it as miserable does he think it's miserable not consciously it's emerging mm. unconscious it, it's emerging through like a sort of freudian or he or a jungian um slip yeah yeah Mouth of Sauron. Antipode to Aragorn, right, too? This is like a... Antipode. What we we like to call in the business foil characters, right? Foil characters. Yeah, they're foils. Aragorn, is his name is essential to him, to the mouth. His name doesn't matter. Oh. Aragorn... Aragorn um, needs to be Aragorn. Aragorn, inherently leader-like. Mouth, like you said, climbing the corporate ladder. Aragorn, inherently old, lives long through like his his just uh, his greatness mm-hmm. this guy has to advance his immortality through evil means huh okay yeah like a counterpoint to 
Yeah, Aragorn doesn't. Aragorn doesn't like suffering. The mouth loves suffering. Loves it. Yep. Aragorn's taking his fate into his own hands. The mouth is uh, tied his fate to Sauron. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, number one. And number we'll see one. A, we'll see if it's the same thing for you. You have one left. Sure. Okay. Let's say it at the same time. You ready? One, two, three, and then say yeah, it. Yeah, you ready? One, yep. two, two, three. The Pass of the Ganji. Dead. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which one do you want to do first, Samwise Gamgee or Paths of the Dead? Why don't we do Paths of the Dead, and then we'll give Sam the last. Okay. Because Sam also has the last word of the entire yeah, story. Yeah, totally. That's good. I am surprised to hear you say Sam, because he doesn't strike me as anomalous or miscellaneous or Oh, uh, well, we but didn't we didn't talk about. We have you're right. So he, this is like stash box wise. Like we yes, he does deserve more more um, right. airtime. Yeah. Okay. So the Paths of the Dead to me is the weirdest thing in this whole book. And when I was reading it as a child, I don't think I even, I don't think it even registered. Like, I think if you asked me a year after I read the book when I was, when I was 13 or whatever, what do you think about the paths of the dead? I would say, I don't remember that part of the book at all. Like, cause I think it's pretty obscure. I don't think there's a precedent for it. And, uh, it's yeah, for like I, a deus ex machina. Sure. Yeah. It's like, Oh, how are we going to do this? Well, forces are outnumbered we gotta have something else we gotta like even the numbers even the even the playing field slash battlefield somehow and don't they also have a deus ex machina with some naval assistance that's not related right do the do the corsairs come to their assistance the corsairs were on the on the bad guy side the corsairs were on the bad guy side and the did they put no, the corsairs were paths the of the dead dudes in ships to fight the corsairs Paths of the Dead dudes took, like, defeated the Corsairs, okay, and then took the ships as a way to get to the battle. Right. Time. Okay. Okay. Uh, who are these dudes? The Paths of the Dead dudes. These dudes are dead men, spirits of men, ghosts, like undead, and they served kings of old in Gondor, and Gondor called on them to fight against whatever evil in that current like first second whatever whatever age maybe it was the initial battle versus Sauron at the end of the second age and these yeah dudes I think were it probably like, was these dudes were like no we're not gonna fight we're gonna go hide in these hills actually yeah, we're gonna run away they hid I think they hid okay so then there's like then this is um, Tolkien bringing in like cowardice as well right. and like yeah. well, I wonder how that relates to his experience in the war I know I was just thinking about what you said about officers being charged with the duty to shoot soldiers who turned around yeah right and the impact that that would make on a young man um yep yeah so then so then these people so these men went and hid in the hills and whatever king cursed them like you were cursed to live without rest until so, your oath has been because you swore an oath until your oath has been fulfilled yeah. which is why which is why Aragorn controlling Pippin's so fucked up it's uh, like, well it's, it's in like the same model Pippin same, didn't make that oath yet. it's in the same model you're applying the same level of yeah the implication I think is that the lords all have to serve the overlord right yeah, yeah all the kings have to serve the high king that's regardless of whether must you bend said the it, knee. whether you said it or not, by dint of being a king or a lord. It seems to me like that these 
men did bend the knee they did swear an oath yeah okay um but they're similar to the evilish northern buried men in that they have this they're in the suspension where they are not dead they haven't passed on right there's also a weird getting back to the our first item the religion or magic or whatever like how does the king how does the king perform this task of binding the spirits of men to the to the path of the dead until they're that's a very uh vaguely it's a vague it's a vague procedure right like and, how how did the curse actually play out and also they're possible? they're literally in an underground passage right i picture it like that they're lined up on both sides of this long tunnel and that and that uh aragorn and what like legolas gimli and them they all go from rohan to the paths of the dead and they all go through it right yes they all go through it and it's underground Including it's the, underground the dudendine also is it go. under it's underground right they pass through like yeah they go they do go under is it just a really deep narrow valley or is it like a cave or is it like a crawl through where there's a valley and yeah, there's either, become over either way this is loaded with sort of like symbolism right you know like the descent into the underworld to to free up yeah these, literally the literally under the world it's like un, unchaining these thonic forces so that they can fight on the surface that they're obligated to fight on the surface and there's a lot to be said about the going underground thing too like uh, that we don't need to get into but like uh, like Gimli feels weird about it even though he should feel good about it he's frustrated that Legolas goes in before him maybe yeah that's a um, sense of pride for him yep and uh, it's just a very scary confrontation with death everyone thinks that they're not going to make it right doesn't not they, everyone they're kinda just they didn't say like if you go you're probably not gonna survive I, I guess so there's something like that they're like well it's sort of like if you're in a playoff game like sports mm-hmm. like if you lose you're out yeah. but like so you're playing a zone defense and the other team keeps scoring like you gotta change something cause if you continue to do what you're doing you're going you're definitely going to lose if you go run a man defense, which you've never run, a person-to-person defense, you're probably not very good at it, but and you might lose doing it, but you're for sure going to lose the other way. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you got to try something. Plus, Aragorn maybe has some sort of prophetic knowledge that he has to do that. Sometimes Aragorn behaves in yeah, ways that, it, like... Wasn't it said somewhere? Well, Gandalf is, again, in this metaphor you've got, is the coach. Gandalf's like, <laughs> you gotta go, got to go to man-on-man, and you're, you'll be fine. And Aragorn's like, I trust you, Gandalf. You know, you know more about this this age than me. Right. And the obligations of, like, Numenorean But I think kings. Gandalf's being like, uh, keep doing zone. It's not going to work. You think? Yeah, sure. And he said it way, that- Yeah, he know. I think Aragorn's known the whole time he has to do it, right? Yeah. It's not like he figures it out when he gets to Rohan. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for the Foster, and you're going to go for the actual text that we're talking about yeah, right but there's no chapter called paths of the dead i know we're gonna have to find is... it we'll get a citation from foster great all right. give me that one all right paths of the dead without rereading the whole book we have uh we've looked at the fandom and we've looked at foster and we've located and read parts of two different sections in the return of the king 
where the Paths of the Dead are mentioned, although I suspect from a citation in Foster that they're mentioned in the Two Towers, too. But I don't want to look for it. Uh, according to Foster, it's a road under the arid Nimres, leading from the dead door above Dunharrow to the source of the Morthond near Eric. The paths of the dead were closed to all save the dead who lived there and the heir of Isildur. So he can get in. Right. And the dead are there. Yep. And they're there. And, and I so it must be probably in the two towers where they explain what their obligation is. Because I didn't see it anywhere else. Did you? Explain what's going on with the paths of the dead. Well, they're, why the dead are living there and why they're obliged to help Aragorn. Oh. You want that part, huh? If you got it, sure. And while you're while you're getting it, so this is where uh, Legolas and Gimli are joining them on the paths of the dead, passing the great company. Blah blah blah. That we shall know. That we shall know if we ever we come to Eric," said Aragorn. But the oath that they broke was to fight against Sauron, and they must fight thereafter if they are f- to fulfill it. For at the Eric there stands yet a black stone that was brought, it was said, from Numenor by Isildur, and it was set upon a hill, and upon it the king of the mountains swore allegiance to him in the beginning of the realm of Gondor. Hashtag colonialism. But when Sauron returned, they grew in might again. Isildur summoned the men of the mountains to fulfill their oath, and they would not, for they had worshipped Sauron in the dark years. Then Isildur said to their king, Thou shalt be the last king, and if the West prove mightier than thy black master, this curse I lay upon thee and thy folk, to rest never until your oath is fulfilled. For this war will last through the years uncounted, and you shall be summoned once again ere the end. And they fled before the wrath of Isildur, and did not dare to go forth to war on Sauron's part. And they hid themselves in secret places in the mountains, and had no dealings with other men, but slowly dwindled in the barren hills, and their terror and the terror of the sleepless dead lies about the hills of Erech, and all places that the people lingered. But that way I must go, since there are none living to help me. And then they go. Mm-hmm. And from the physical description it sounds like it's a deep deep valley deep into the glen and there stood a sheer wall of rock and in the wall the dark door so is it a cave or not in they the do wall- go underground in there's the, okay. an underground path in the wall the dark door gaped before them like the mouth of night signs and figures were carved above its wide arch too dim to read and fear flowed it like a gray vapor Halbarad Hel- Hel- says it's an evil door uh, none of the horses will go in and Aragorn says we got it we got to go in yeah, he's like, there's no other way. It's my duty. We must. And his strength alone, like the men, like through his strength, the men followed and the horses followed. They have torches with them. And then it sounds like Gimli's perception is that as they ride, more and more ghastly, like semi-unseen figures fall in behind them. Yep. I just had that part. And then too. they get into a great empty space, and then they they come to a to a to the king, right? 
Yeah, so like at one point, um, Gimli looked back and the dwarf saw before his eyes the face and glitter of the elves' bright eyes. So he's behind them rode, blah, blah, blah. But not behind them rode Eladin, last of the company, but not the last of those who took the downward road. The dead are following, said Legolas. I see shapes of men and of horses and pale banners like shreds of cloud and spears like winter thickets on a mighty, on a misty night. The dead are following. Mm -hmm. When Aragorn gets up to the, into the big open space and seems, approaches, I guess, the king of the dead, he says this enigmatic stuff. Hither shall the flowers of Symbelmine, Symbelmine, Come never unto world's end. Nine mounds and seven there are now green with grass, and through all the long years he has lain at the door that he could not unlock. Whither does it lead? Why would he pass? None shall ever know, for that is not my errand. And then he turns back, and he says, I summon you to the stone of Eric. Keep your hordes and your secrets hidden in the accursed years. Speed only, we ask. Let us pass and then come. I summon you to the stone of Eric. I don't know what any of that stuff about the mounds, green with grass, seven and nine. I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> Do you? Well, we'll never find out either because that's not his task. Not I, his yeah, <laughs> right. I know. So, like, there's more stuff going on. And he's like, ah, yeah, we like we need speed right now. Shadow facts. We yeah, love shadow right. facts because he's fast, not because of anything else. We like the fastness. So, like, Aragorn's saying, yeah, yeah, you got shit going on. T like, we're looking for speed right now. Get to the place. I summon you. We're going to do the oath thing. Let's go. You don't know what any of the mounds mean. Or don't need to. Okay. Sure, yeah, and yeah. Aragorn's like, don't need to do it. We got war. If we don't do it, we're all dead. It, I don't care. Fun moment for Aragorn where he's like, I know, I know all kinds of stuff, but we're focusing on one thing right now. Right. You know, I've been around the block. Okay, well, um, did you picture them as lined up like that they're, like, are they, li it says, they keep saying that they're living there, that the dead are like, that they're living there. They can't yeah, get out, Yeah, I mean, living, living dead, like the living dead, they are there. Yeah, like in houses and stuff with families? No, these are just the men, all the men, breakers. Just all men. Yeah, it's just like some brotherhood, some fraternity, some. Living underground. Yeah, but are they really living because they're dead? No, but, yeah, I don't know what they're doing down there. They're, it is they're like, undead. You know, back to Fraggle Rock, it's a little Fraggle Rocky. There's this thing going on underground, and if you get down there, you could. there's big chambers, and there's narrow chambers, and there's sure. there's all kinds of politics down there. Sure, and in the, like, maybe I'm biased from the movies where they were portrayed as sort of these ghostly green spirits. Oh, see, I haven't seen that movie, so I don't know what it looks yeah. like, yeah. As I said at the beginning, I've never really understood this scene and this part, and uh, I it's like it just sits... I don't know if it's because it's uncomfortable or whatever. It just doesn't seem to sit in my imagination the way that other stuff in this book does. When do they, when do they like, fulfill their oath? I don't know. You mean, like, when do they, are, are, when do they go, be dead? When do they get to yeah, be when dead? Do they, when, do they, when do they get to be dead? Because I'm pretty sure the movie is different from the movie in the book. I don't know. There, so there is another scene where they're featured. And that scene was... In the last debate, the last they debate. say that Gimli and, and maybe Aragorn gives an account. Maybe just Aragorn and 
It's it's Aragorn and Gimli. Uh, sorry, you have that, you have that sp- Legolas you have and Gimli give an account. Section? Yeah, I do. It's long. Pippin, Pippin, so Pippin says the sun is shining here, and we are all together for a day or two at least. I want to hear more about you all. This is the last debate, chapter. Come, Gimli. You and Legolas have mentioned your strange journey with Strider about a dozen times already this morning, but you haven't told me anything about it. The sun may shine here, said Gimli, but there are memories of that road that I do not wish to recall out of the darkness. Had I known what was before me, I think that not for any friendship would I have taken the paths of the dead. The paths of the dead, said Pippin. I heard Aragorn say that, and I wondered what he could mean. Won't you tell us some more? Not willingly, said Gimli, for upon that road I was put to shame. This is the whole thing where he gets sad. <laughs> Gimli glowing son who was deemed himself more tough than men and hardier under earth than any elf, but neither did I prove, and I was held to the road only by the will of Aragorn, and by the love of him also. I'm not going to read this whole thing, man. Okay, so then Legolas takes over, and, and uh, swiftly then, swiftly then, this is Legolas, he told of the haunted road under the mountains, and the dark tryst at Eric, and the great ride thence, ninety leagues and three, to Pelargir on Anduin. Pelargir? Pelargir? Four days and nights, and on into the fifth, we rode from the black stone, he said, and lo, in the darkness of mortar my hopes rose, for in that gloom the shadow host seemed to grow stronger and more terrible to look upon. Some I saw riding, some striding, yet all moving with the same great speed. So again, yeah, like you said, that emphasis on speed. Silent they were, but there was a gleam in their eyes. In the uplands of Lamedon they overtook our horses and swept around us, and would have passed us by if Aragorn had not forbidden them. At his command they fell back. Even the shades of men are obedient to his will, I thought. They may serve his needs yet. We don't need to do the whole thing, right? They are they are the reason that the, the Corsairs are defeated. The reason the Corsairs are defeated. Because here now the words of the heir of Isildur, your oath is fulfilled. Go back and trouble not the valleys ever again. Depart and be at rest. So that's Aragorn being like, yep, we're done. And the king came up and broke his spear, his spear, and then they all went away. So who does... So I think they just, like, march out and destroy the corsairs down there. Oh, and then, like, the slaves, the oars are now wielded by free men, and manfully they labored, yet slowly we passed with the great river. So they're, the people who are there bringing to Minas Tirith in that battle... The dead did not come with them. Yeah, they're dismissed after the, the fight at sea. The dead come from the paths of the dead to the harbor and destroy the Corsairs. Mm-hmm. Make them flee. Kill them, make them flee. It's not like the movies where the dead go to the fields of Pelennor. Oh, is that what happens in the movies? It does. Hmm. That is the, they are the saving grace, and that's not true! Well, even, I mean, there's no, the battle at Pel. Oh, they go to Pelennor Fields during the siege or whatever? In the films, in the film adaptation. Oh, okay. Hmm. That's the Deus Ex Machina. They're the saviors. But here they're not. It's the slaves, the enslaved people who are then freed. Um, help them. There's got to be someone else, though. I feel like there's more. Well, more the I mean, the Rohirrim ride in. The Ro- yeah, the Rohirrim the are there. In. But, like, even even though, even that... It could be like the lack of hope, like the orcs are seeing the Corsairs being like, ha-ha, reinforcements. Oh, just kidding. Well, oh, also, no. like, the Lord of the Nazgul is killed on at that battle, too. Right. right? I thought that that was what turned the Horde. Yep. 
it's that it's also um the Rohirrim get more like a a spirit boost by they're like oh no the Corsairs we're doomed and then oh it's not the Corsairs they're on our side Mm -hmm. great and then they get a boon from that word okay number zero Sam Gamgee (laughs) number zero Sam Gamgee right Sam Sam has been called the unsung hero has been called the real hero he deserves he deserves to mention you know sure he's throughout the whole thing so he's not miscellaneous he is core but he's not like he's not like main he's not like the main focus he's not the he's not like the forerunner in any section but he's necessary yeah sometimes i'm inclined to think that we need to think about frodo and sam psychologically as being two aspects of the hero yeah i don't know if that's sound thinking sound literary analysis or sound psychoanalysis i mean they wouldn't frodo wouldn't be a hero without sam sam wouldn't be a hero without frodo Sam would not have gone on the va- gone on the I must call it a vacation. <laughs> Sam, <laughs> Sam would not have gone on the adventure were it not for Frodo. Right. And Frodo would not have survived the adventure. Right. They are inherently and, linked. And all, they also would not have succeeded if it wasn't for Gollum. Right. There's almost an element where they're they're a they're a three person, they're a trinity yep. of forces. Um so what distinguishes Sam from Frodo? Lots of things. I mean, so Sam's described early on as sort of like, he's maybe he's a little chubby, he's a little slower, he's not quite as, he's not smart. Like, these are virtues he doesn't have, but he's like fiercely loyal. He's described like as a, he's compared to a dog in like early on. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of like Gandalf chooses chooses him as a companion, almost like it's a conscious choice, but it's sort of like a no brainer. Like, you wouldn't be able to escape it. Mm -hmm. He, I'm not sure that he's not smart. <clears throat> he's described as like he's not book smart. Exactly right. That's exactly. Oh no, Mister Frodo! <laughs> I don't know about any of that. Right. But and yet again, it's sociopolitical. But I do want to say it. Sam's family is maybe tending the entire. Um, what's it called? His house. It's called Bag End. Yeah, Bag like, End. Bag End is maybe like this is Row. maybe like a. Yeah, this is maybe like a British nobility situation where there are domestic servants who have lived yeah. on the land right. for generations upstairs um, downstairs yeah sam is up downstairs yeah so sam has an intimate knowledge of how to how to garden he's so that's his main he's mainly a gardener right, right which that's seems his, to have like that link to uh bombadil mm-hmm. and another thing another link with bombadil is sam bears the ring for a while and then Frodo's like, give it back. And Sam has no problem. Yeah. Like, not even, a, like, a hint of hesitation. He is affected by the ring. He's affected, he like, a little also... bit. But he's like, here you go. Like, he, but, like, his, if he hesitates, it's like, are you sure? Like, this is going to, I know it's going to hurt you. Right. It's not through yeah. any selfish means. It's, sure. like, this completely selfless thing. Yeah, it's funny that the ring bearer is so susceptible to that when other characters, I mean, maybe that's by dint of having carried the ring around for a while. Right. Gollum and Frodo both... Uh, it, they're burdened by the ring, but also they they want to carry the ring. Yeah. Um, it's really like it has a chemical that's like slowly seeping into sure. you. And Sam is less affected because he hasn't. But Sam has the ring on for kind of a long time. 
he wears it for quite a while. He wears it, yeah. He wears it some. Like it's an intense, it's a long duration, and it's in, it's in in, mortar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so he's not the intellectual, but he's he has a higher wisdom score. (laughs) He doesn't have a lower intelligence score, but a higher wisdom score. Um, here's another difference: is Frodo is uh, a bachelor, and Sam is a family man to the end, right? Frodo never gets married. Right. Um, and Sam's already getting ready to get married when he gets whisked away on the... Right, he's, like, he's, Rosie he's and Rosie are already, like they're already like, in oh, love. Rosie. Um, yeah, yeah. Yep. And Frodo has nothing like that going on. Uh, there's also this, like... Sam there's, looks, Yeah, there's this great love between Frodo and Sam. Sure, that's not a contrast, but yeah, there's a great love between them. I was going to say Sam loves food. Oh. Fro- is Frodo disinterested in food, more or less? I mean, he likes it as, I think, as any as any hobbit likes yeah, it. Yeah, but Sam likes food so much that he brought His cooking spices. Yeah. yeah. He's got a little bit of salt, a little taste of the Shire with him. Yep. Um, and he hated, to dis- he hated to leave his cooking ware, which he carried through, like, the entire journey into Mordor. And then it's like, well, we got to get rid of stuff. And he's like, ah, fine. He's yeah, very that, reluctant to get rid of his pots and That's pans. his sacrifice going into mortar, right? It's his cooking stuff. Do they leave it outside mortar? Yeah, he brings it in to some point, and I think he... I don't remember I when. I know he loses it. it. Yeah, it could be his... Whatever, I don't want to speculate. I think, it's I, a one, I think he carries it like the whole way through Kirith Ungol and through that fight or whatever, and then he's like, well, we gotta, we got to scrap something. Yeah, I guess we're not going to cook again. I think it's after that, after they escape the tower, that he gets rid of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we can, like, anyone can check. Yeah, anyone can check. But the point is he was reluctant, and he yeah. carried it a long way. Okay. Are there other big contrasts? Between well, yeah, and, and, and another big contrast is that Frodo goes to the Grey Havens and doesn't come back. Yeah. And Sam comes back Sam says, I'm Sam home. takes him, yeah, Sam takes, so that's, yeah, that's the ending. So Sam takes, he's like, escort, says goodbye. It is the, I mean, the last line of the story. Um, he embraces Rose. Um, little Eleanor becomes on his lap, family man. He drew a deep breath. Well, oh, I'm back, he said. Yeah. And that's it. Story ends. Which is like this beautiful storytelling thing of like the book is this, if you're, I'm just imagining like if you read this book to someone and you're like all gathered around telling a story, well, I'm back. Like, and he's like, well, I'm back. And then yeah. you get to come back to the waking world. You get to, story's over. There yet, and back again. Yeah. And yet yeah. now you're back and now more things. Yeah. Um, and that, it feels like a good place to end on Sam, but is there nothing else you want to say about Sam? <laughs> it's funny that there's end. not much to say maybe about Sam. I mean, he's also, he's hyper aware of, he's always got his eye on Frodo. He's hyper aware of Frodo, where the rest of the fellowship's going, oh, this stuff, blah, 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 blah. And Sam's like, yeah, yeah. Like, Sam's not worried about the larger themes not necessarily yeah no he's, he's always just concerned about Frodo yeah, being he's physically like the guardian. okay Duke, again yeah. this is like the loyalty the sort of like the dog yeah. aspect the watcher in the water grabs Frodo and Sam's like immediately on it 
Sam's protecting him from Gollum. Sam's always watching. Yeah. It's like this character, this, this like ultimate He's a friendship. Sidekick. That's a sidekick role, yeah? Yeah. I guess. I don't really, I guess I don't but know. But it's enough not about real. It's not like a Robin to a Batman. That's what I was going to say. It's not, it's I don't so know much better. Of... It's so much more and more, like, more depth, heavier more intense and one thing that always comes up in the sidekick story is always like uh, some episodes deep the sidekick has some sort of like uh, reaction where they're like I don't want to be yeah I should be first one yeah, nah, I should be number I shouldn't one. be number two right and, and I'm not getting the respect and that never happens to Sam as far as I can tell maybe maybe a little bit with Gollum there's that there's that meta moment where they're walking through the woods and they're like I wonder what story we'll be in or if this is one of those stories and then Frodo's like, I like, I want to hear more about Samwise the Brave. I wouldn't yeah. have gotten very Frodo wouldn't have gotten very far without Sam. And he's like, oh, don't make fun. But like, there's that. Uh, but it wasn't fun. It was genuine. Yeah, Frodo. Frodo wants Sam to get a little spotlight. Yeah. And Sam's like, no, this is your story. Yeah, kinda. Even though Sam does take us home, he brings us back. And yeah, that's that's interesting. The whole story, like Sam gets the last words. Sam brings us back. You think we're done? Yeah. 